the book of the Hopi, part two, chapter two, point one. North to the back door. I see Kachinas off in the distance singing this song. Hiya, hiya, milolo. It fades off into the distance. Now, if you're not familiar with Randall Carlson, Google him after you hear me read this chapter to you and see how his theories line up with some of the things that the Hopis say in their story. So the people began their migrations climbing up a high mountain. They were accompanied by two insect people resembling the katydid or the locust, the mahu, which is an insect with heat power. On top of this mountain, they met a great bird, the eagle. One of the mahus acting as a spokesman for the people asked the eagle, Have you been living here very long? Yes, replied the eagle, since the creation of this fourth world. We've traveled a long way to reach this new land, said the mahu. Will you permit us to live here with you? Perhaps, said the eagle, but I must test you first. Drawing out one of the arrows he was holding in his claws, he ordered the two mahus to step closer. To one, he said, I'm going to poke this arrow into your eyes. If you do not close them, you and all the people who are following you may remain here. Whereupon he poked the point of the arrow so close to the mahu's eye, it almost touched. But the mahu did not even blink. You're a people of great strength, observed the eagle. But the second test is much harder, and I don't believe you will pass it. We're ready for the second test, said the two mahus. The eagle pulled out a bow, cocked an arrow, and shot the first mahu through the body. The mahu, with the arrow sticking out one side of him, lifted the flute he had brought with him and began to play a sweet, tender melody. Ha! Well, said the eagle. You have more power than I thought. So he shot the other mahu with the second arrow. The two mahus, both pierced with arrows, played their flutes more tenderly and more sweetly, producing a soothing vibration and an uplift of spirit which healed their pierced bodies. The eagle, of course, then gave the people permission to occupy the land, saying, now that you have stood both tests, you may use my feather. Anytime you want to talk to our father's son, the creator, and I will deliver your message because I am the conqueror of air and master of height. I am the only one who has the power of space above, for I represent the loftiness of the spirit and can deliver your prayers to the creator. Ever since then, the people have used the feathers of an eagle for their prayer feathers or pahos. And they sing to a sick child, knowing that the sweet power of music will help to heal him. The locust mahu is known as the hump-backed flute player, the kachina named Kokopele, Kokopalau, because he looked like wood. Koko means wood, palau means hump. I've always seen him as a, 
a fellow with a pack on his back. It was an old-fashioned military kind of pack that had a kind of a triangular frame, a tube, and a big round pack on the back of it. I see this Cocopelli wearing one of those kind of packs. I see him as maybe being, in real life, the Cocopelli I've always imagined, if he were a man, was a peddler going from settlement to settlement. And I had a whole almost European wanderer image built around Cocopelli. And while the character is similar, he's not the same as the one in Northern European myths and uh, some other stories. He's got a similar task. His job, as far as the culture is concerned, is similar, but he's not the same guy that was wandering around in the Vikings. So the hump on his back, he carried seeds and plants and flowers. And with the music of his flute, he created warmth. When the people moved off on their migrations over the continent, they carved pictographs of him on rocks all the way from the tip of South America up to Canada. And it was for these two mahus that the Blue Flute and Gray Flute clans and societies were named. Having obtained the eagle's permission to occupy the land, the people now divided into four groups, each going a different direction. With those going to the north was the Blue Flute clan, accompanied by one of the two mahus. Every so often, the hump-backed flute player would stop and scatter seeds from the hump on his back. Then he would march on, playing his flute and singing a song. His song is still remembered, but the words are so ancient that nobody knows what they mean. As a footnote here, Frank Waters put in that Cocopelle, the Cochina, is often made with a long penis to symbolize the seeds of human reproduction also, and to symbolize whatever long penises symbolize in legends. It's also pointed out here in a footnote that the national emblems of both the United States and Mexico both contain eagles holding arrows in their claws. So having obtained the eagle's permission to occupy the land, we did that. This song, this ancient song, the words go like this. And sometimes if I put myself in the right frame of mind, I can hear Kachina's singing in the chorus of my life. Kitanapu, 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 
Chililicha, chililicha, donkabiki, masikiva, ki, kiva, kiva, no mehopet. The spider woman led this group after going northward. It comprised five clans. No, she led this group that was going northward, not after going northward. It comprised five clans, the spider clan, which was named after her, the blue flute clan, the ghost or fire clan, the snake clan, and the sun clan. They traveled slowly up the length of the continent on the west side of the mountain wall. The going was easy in the tropical country where it was warm and there were plenty of fruits and vegetables to eat. Then the land became drier and colder. Sometimes they stopped for a year or more to plant the harvest, some of, plant and harvest some of the corn they carried with them. They would make homes by digging holes in the ground and roofing them with brush and poles, which people now describe as pit houses. Then the star which was guiding them moved on and they packed up again to follow it. The remains of these pit houses and rock writings that they made on their way are the flags and footprints marking their long journey. Northward and still northward, the star kept leading them until they came to a land of perpetual snow and ice. At night, they burrowed into snowbanks and kept warm with the power of heat they were able to evoke. For water, they planted the little jar of water they always carried. It became a spring which gushed forth water here just as it had in the dry deserts they had crossed to the south. They also carried a little bowl of earth. Into this, they planted seeds of corn and melon. And as they sang over it, the seeds grew into plants, and the plants bore corn and melons. Such were the powers they possessed because they were still pristinely pure on this new fourth world. At last, they reach what is now the area we call the Arctic Circle, a legendary wall of ice like the one that in the Game of Thrones. It is as far as we can go, they said to one another. The way is blocked by a mountain of snow, a sea of ice. Clearly, this is the back door of this fourth world, which Sautuk Nyang said was closed to us. Spider-Woman, however, urged them to go on. You have the magic powers given you. Use them. Melt this mountain of snow, this sea of ice. The Spider-Clan agreed at once persuading the others to pool their magic powers to melt the closed back door. The Blue Flute Clan used the humpback flute player to play his flute to bring tropical warmth. The Fire Clan summoning the deep, deep fire inside the earth. The Sun Clan invoking the heat of the sun. And the Snake Clan trying to crack the mountain of snow and the sea of ice with mighty vibrations. The snake having the power to utilize the vibrations sent along the world's axis by the two twins, because he lives deep underground. Four times they tried, 
but failed to break the closed back door. Sautuk Nang then appeared to Spider Woman and said sternly, If my uncle the creator and I his nephew had allowed you to open this back door, disaster would have come. The melted mountain of snow and sea of ice would have flooded this new fourth world and forever changed its shape from the way we ordained it to be. You have done wrong because you have helped to create these people and have aided them in all their emergences. We have allowed you to remain young and beautiful. But now, because you have disobeyed our wishes, I am going to let your own thread run out. We are not going to cut it off. Just let it run out until you are an ugly old woman. Now, something more. Because the spider clan named after you also encouraged the people to use their sacred powers wrongly. I ordain that the spider clan hereafter will breed wickedness and evil. That is what I had to say. Now I've said it. So all the clans turned back from the north and returned southward along the east side of the wall of mountains in their, until they came to Pisi Sivayu now known as the Colorado River. The spider clan separating from the others then continued on south to the place from which they all had started. The other four clans, the fire, blue flute, snake, and sun clans, turned eastward and traveled until they came to the Atlantic Ocean. Then they turned back and began their slow migration to the west limit of the land. On the great prairies, they stopped again. The snake clan especially wanted to leave its footprint there, but there were no cliffs on which to mark the picture writing. So the people left their signature in the shape of a great mound of earth resembling a snake. Some contemporary Hopis believe that the great serpent mound near Loudoun, Ohio, may have been constructed by their ancestors. The largest serpent effigy in the world, it is an earth embankment nearly one quarter of a mile long, 20 feet wide, and 5 feet high, grown over with grass that has prevented it from erosion. It represents a servant serpent whose body is extended in seven deep curves. Its jaws are open, the walls forming them being about 60 feet long and 17 feet wide. Between them is a large oval mound commonly believed to be an egg, which the serpent seems to be swallowing. Whatever its origin may be, a member of the snake clan interpreted the meaning of the serpent mound according to Hopi tradition from a photograph and a drawing of it. As there was no rock in the area, the village where the people lived, 
the burial mounds nearby and the serpent mound itself were made of plastered mud. The Hopi word is chokshmo. It means a mud mound. The oval mound represented the village. It was placed within the jaws of the snake to show that it was protected by the snake's power. Its extension, sticking out in front, shows that the snake has the power to draw light. The two small round mounds on each side of his head represent his eyes, as well as the circular markings on his body. The great length of the body indicates that he is the longest snake known to the people. He faces west because the people were traveling west when they built this mound. Although he is the guardian snake of the east and would continue to protect them until they reach the wall of mountains separating east from west. His name is Tokchi'i, guardian of the east. There is a shrine for him in southeast Arabi near Koknupovi, and it is said a similar shrine was placed for him on the Atlantic coast. There are five other snakes in the directions. Palukngang, water snake, is the guardian of the south, who protected the people when they were in that area. This is the snake who is in puppet form, dances in the kiva during the night kachina dances. Masichuas, the gray horned snake, is the snake of the north. Kaatoa, the black snake, is the guardian of the west and night. Tawa Taho, the sun flying or whip snake, governs the above, being able to fly and never touching the ground. Tuwachua, the sand or sidewinder, is the snake of the below from whom we receive the vibrations of the earth and the knowledge of the movement of things that inhabit the earth. Of these six directional snakes, only those of the below, north, and west are used during the snake antelope ceremony, these being the only ones whose powers man can control. Continuing their migrations west, the people crossed the wall of mountains that separate east from west, being the axis of the continent along which the twins at either end send out their vibrations. They were now under the protection of Katoya. Eventually, they reached the shore of the sea to the west, turned back east again, and recrossed the mountains. Their movement became progressively slower as the star began to guide them in a great circle over a high, dry plateau whose center is now known as the Four Corners, being the only point in the United States where four states touch. Here it stopped over Chaco Canyon in northwest New Mexico. The racetracks at Chaco Canyon. 
Chaco Canyon, now a national monument, contains the finest remains of an ancient civilization north of Mexico. In the canyon, eight miles long and two miles wide are found 18 major ruins, including Pueblo Bonito, Chetroquetl, and Pueblo del Arroyo, and hundreds of smaller sites. Pueblo Bonita is the largest single ruin yet found. Covering three acres, it was five stories high and contained 32 kivas, 800 rooms housing a population of 1,200 people. Built more than a thousand years ago, the walls of this great pueblo were constructed of alternate layers of large rocks and small stones fitted together so tightly that no mortar was necessary. This great crossroads of all clans figures so prominently in the migration legends that we made two trips to Chaco Canyon taking Hopi informants with us. John Lanza was on the last trip and made some interesting discoveries. Hundreds of artifacts had been found during the excavation. Stone tools, bone implements, baskets, pottery, cotton cloth, and turquoise beads. Among these were seashells and skeletons, and skeletons of 14 macaws in one room, and the feathers of tropical birds commonly believed to have been brought in over ancient trade routes. According to our Hopi friends, they confirmed the migration route of the Fluke clan, which still uses the heads of macaws and feathers of tropical birds in the flute ceremony, and of the snake clan, who use seashells. Displayed in the museum were two other artifacts identified as a neck piece and an inlaid earring, the Tuo Inaka, stacked up corn ear jewel, worn by flute maidens in the flute ceremony. In addition to these, hundreds of fragments were excavated at Terra Chattel and taken to the repository in Globe, Arizona for restoration and assembly. Among these, we later identified fragments of wooden parrots, such as are still used on the altar of the Blue Flute Society. At Chaco, one whole cliff wall was covered with pictographs, including a roll of Cocopelli figures and the signatures of many other clans, the snake, sun, bear, sand, coyote, lizard, eagle, water, parrot, spider, and bow. John was sure that there were certain shrines nearby. Park officials knew of none, but graciously took us on a four-wheel drive truck up to the high plateau behind unexcavated Pueblo Alto and overlooking Escavada Wash to the north. After an hour's patient search, John found one shrine. Although he had never been there before, he sighted from this and located a second, a pile of rocks under which he dug out three circular stones. From these two shrines, he sighted the location of a third across the wash. These three shrines, pohoki means a prayer standing house, also known as a tutuska, a shrine in the open. Tatuskia, 
That word sounds so familiar to a uh, Siberian word I've heard somewhere. These three shrines, he told us later, marked the course of three racetracks. The one to the west, he believed, had been used by the Flute Society during the Flute Ceremony. Ceremonial races are still held during the Flute and Snake Antelope Ceremonies, the only Hopi ceremonies which include races. The Pohoki to the east, where the three circular stones were found, was a shrine of the sun, the three stones symbolizing the three previous worlds to which life was imparted by the sun. It was the southern terminus of a long racetrack that extended northward to the sun temple at Mesa Verde, some three or four days travel by foot. A faintly discernible trail is still visible by plane and much more visible with 2018 version satellite imaging. A feature of country flute and snake races is the small jar of sacred water, which captured by the winning runner from the priest carrying it brings rain to his family's fields. According to tradition, the same ritual was followed here at Chaco for many years. Then as more and more clans came in, building up the vast pueblos and creating rivalry between them, as tillable land became more scarce, the races deteriorated into mere sporting events held by competing clans and pueblos. As a, re as a result of this, rain became more and more scarce and the springs began to dry up. A secret meeting of the two branches of the flute clan was now called. The dominant blue flute group admitted it had used its power wrongly in attempting to melt the back door to the continent, and its power wrongly used that way caused them to want to repent here. I lost my place, sorry. So, because it had used its power wrongly, the ceremonies here were being corrupted. Its own, the Blue Flutes ceremonies were being corrupted. Therefore, it gave up the leadership to the Gray Flute clan, whose leaders ordered both groups to leave Chaco to resume their migrations. Behind them followed the Snake, Fire, and Sun clans. South of Chaco Canyon, the Flute clan separated from the others, traveling to Soya Topovi, where the soil is soft, now known as Canyon de Chez. After several years, they went westward to the Colorado River, south and then east again to settle at Paveovi. For a while, they lived at Awatovi, but could not get along with the people in this big village. So they took up their march to establish a new village, Otok. Sikivi, Valley of the Strong Plant, now a ruin in Canyon de la Diablo. I have to mention that there's got to be more to the story, Valley of the Strong Plant, which is now a ruin in a canyon someone chose to name Diablo. All this time they had been without an altar 
conducting their ceremonies only with their tiponi, or clan fetish. Here they built a new altar like the one they had been forced to leave behind at Chaco Canyon. The priests carved the wooden kayaru, the parrot, with great care. For the feathers of this bird bring the warmth necessary for germination. The clan then moved to Shongo Povi before eventually settling in Orabi. Batatakan and Keet Seal. Some people say the Snake, Fire, and Sun clans also went to Canyon de Shea before they part, departed or parted from the Flute clan. At any rate, they soon migrated west to a wild and beautiful region marked by great arched caves in the high cliff walls. Here at Kawestema, the north village, each of the three clans established a village of its own. The village to the south, Batataken, is situated down in a gloomy box canyon, Frank Waters said, but I think a shady box canyon is more appropriate if you have le ever lived in the desert southwest. A shady canyon wouldn't look gloomy. It would, it would look cool and shady. It's built in a huge cave which, whose arch rises 236 feet above the 500-foot wall of a sandstone cliff, and it contains nearly 150 rooms. And don't think of this as a cave. This is like a place where a, a flake of this giant sandstone wall flaked off and left this uh, divot in the wall like a fractally magnified thing that would happen if you flaked a piece of flint you know and you get that strike point anyway those things this guy is calling caverns they look like that they're not deep caves like uh, Carlsbad caverns or some of the deeper places that are in Europe that were called caves, that were similar kinds of arrangements, minus the architecture. So anyway, these caves and the high cliff walls that you've probably seen pictures of. The village to the south, Betatakan, is situated down this gloomy box canyon, shady box canyon, and it was built by the fire clan. In the rock writings nearby are two interesting figures, among others. They're shown in the book. The man in the figure 10a is said to be Taknakwunu, the spirit who controls the weather. It is easy to see why his figure with the rainbow stripes inside the shield was marked on the wall. For figure 10b with the three quadrants, it's just a circle with... Uh, a four divided into four by two lines and three of the four are painted red and that is to signify the long drought that seems to be substantiated by tree ring dating indicating that Petitakan was occupied between 1242 and 1300 embracing the period of the long drought.
The four handprints to the left of the figure show that the Fire Clan had completed its four-directional migration and was on its way to Orabi. Hopi Jerusalem, I suppose. For centuries, the Fire Clan always looked back on Betatakan as its ancestral home. After the disastrous split of 1906 at Orabi, when one quarreling faction moved out, it was with the intention of returning to Betatakan. Even today, some dissidents in Hotavia talk about going back to Betatakan, as though it even though, in 1963, it was on, under government control. I don't know the situation in 2018. The village to the north, an 11-mile horseback ride from Betatakan, is the largest cliff pueblo in Arizona, containing more than 100, 160 rooms. It is equally spectacular, lying in a similar large cave. Its name is Kitsil and it was built by the Spider Clan. The word Kitsil is a Navajo word, which means broken pottery. It was abandoned in 1286 in a peaceful, orderly withdrawal after many rooms had been carefully sealed. The third village built by the Snake Clan is now known as Inscription House. It lies 30 miles west and contains about 75 rooms. It's ironic that all Kowestema, called the North Village because it lay north of Arabi, now comprises the Navajo National Monument, and the builders of its three villages, ancestors of t today's Hopi, Snake, Fire, and Sun Clans, are known only as Anasazi a Navajo name for the ancient ones who preceded them. There's nothing at all Navajo about the villages and their traditions. Abandoning these spectacular villages, the three clans moved south to build a village on a point above present-day Moenkopi. The spider and snake clans carved markings on a stone near the spring. About 1870, a Mormon named Ashi cut out the portion of the rock containing the markings and mounted it over the doorway of the home, which had just been built by Tuvi, for whom Tuba City was named. Here, it was seen for years. Must have been gone by 1963. For a long while after the fire clan, remained near Moenkopi. The Snake Clan moved down along the Little Colorado, establishing a new village at Mongpatequa, Owl Point Water. The Spider Clan traveled along Moenkopi Wash to, to Telastema, praise of pollen, now known as Blue Canyon, where they built a village whose ruins are still visible. The clan then migrated to build a new village at Kaliva, Sparrowhawk Shrine. Finally, after centuries of migrations, all three clans moved to Orabi, camping below the cliffs next to the Kachina clan, until they were accepted into the village.
Migrations of the bird clans. The parrot is the symbol of fertility and the fruitful south, figuring significantly on the blue flute and gray flute altars. The parrot clan is also recognized as the symbolic mother of all Hopi clans. It stands next to the bear clan in a line of succession and one of its members always designates the South. This is how it derived its name and importance. The people of the Parrot clan began their migration in the warm country far to the South. There were very few of them. An old man and a woman, fearful that their clan would die out, wandered into the jungle to seek a power that would make them a fertile people who would multiply enough to carry on their migrations. Soon they met a stranger who took them to his home, where a beautiful woman welcomed them. I heard your prayers for the power of fertility, she told them. So I sent my messenger to bring you here. Now I will give you this blessing. She led the old couple to a large nest in the corner containing many eggs of beautiful colors. Kneel down and put your right hand on these eggs, she told the woman first and then the man. Pray now for the blessing you want. The old couple did so. After a time they felt the movement of life within the eggs. Good, said the beautiful woman. Now you may take your hands off the eggs, knowing that they are parrot eggs and that you are now Kayash Wungwa parrot clan people. You will be fruitful and multiply. You will have the power of fertility. In time to come, other clans and people will, will ask you for the power of increase. You must never deny them this power, for you are Yumutiatoa, mother people. Remember me and what I say, for I am the one who takes care of all bird people. The old couple returned happily to their people, and they took up their long migration, multiplying as they went. They went northward through Pusivi, the big cave near Nogales, they turned west and came to the Pacific, going eastward toward the Atlantic. They stopped at Kiashva, Parrot Spring in the Grand Canyon, and at Sao Yava, the Bat Cave in Walnut Canyon, which had been settled by the Chosinyam, the Blue Jay people. After turning northwest, they passed several small ruins on the flat prairies in Nebraska or Iowa of today, and followed up the east side of the Great Divide through Canada toward the back door. Then they came down on the west side, stopping at several places. Tuwi, the terrace near the Pueblo of Santa Domingo, which still today reveres parrots, Winema, Paviova, Water on the High Place, and Chosovi, Bird Blue House, both near Tonto Ruins, Walnut Canyon, Wapatki, the tall house near Flagstaff, and finally, Shangopovi and Orabi. Among the clans not admitted when they first reached Orabi was the Bow clan. Resentful because they were refused 
admittance, the Bo clan leaders planted a mas Boso, Ghost Cove Valley, the most destructive of all snakes, the red-bellied water snake, to test out the power of the bear clan. The snake, rising out of the valley, began to sway its head back and forth. All the lands began to vibrate. Rocks and boulders began to tumble from the cliffs. Having no power to stop it, the chief of the bear clan called in a Kiva meeting of all clans. You see what's happening. The vibration of this evil snake is bringing, in, bringing an earthquake that will destroy all our villages and our people. The only way to stop it is to sacrifice a life. We, the Bear Clan, will offer the life of a young boy. Which clan among you will offer the life of a young girl? Till midnight, the clans pondered and argued. Finally, the Parrot Clan, mother of all clans, assented to the sacrifice. Preparations began at once. The little parrot girl's hair was washed, and in it was tied a fluffy eagle feather. She was dressed in a red and white ceremonial cape and given a, given a plaque full of cornmeal. The little bear boy's hair was also washed and left to hang free with a cloud feather tied to it. Across his nose and down his cheeks was drawn a line of yalaha red earth paint. He was dressed in a blue kilt and given a plaque of cornmeal to carry. By dawn all the songs had been sung, the pahus made. In a long procession the clan chiefs conducted the two children to Mavoso. The red-bellied water snake was still swaying its head, and now all around its body water was gushing out. Listen to us, said the bear chief. We have come to offer you the lives of these two children. Please accept this and do not destroy us. The little boy and girl, having been told that this was the only way their people could be saved from destruction, walked fearlessly up to the snake. Slowly he wrapped his coils about the children and gave a last mighty shake. Instantly, a great body of water erupted, and in it, the monster snake disappeared with the children. Almost immediately, the water stilled. The village chief of Oribe then walked through the water and placed four coiled plaques over the hole into which the snake had sunk. For many years, the great pool of water remained but the red-bellied snake never again appeared to threaten the village. Because of its noble sacrifice of a little girl, the parrot clan today is next in line of leadership to the bear clan, symbolizes the South as one of the four most important Hopi clans, and is considered the mother of the people. The bear clan, a member of which always serves as village chief, is regarded as the father of Orabi, just as the parrot clan is considered the mother. The late chief Tawakwaptiwa of the bear clan was married to a woman of the parrot clan. Hence, this couple was symbolically the father and mother of Orabi. According to Hopi prophecy, 
This was the last couple to unite the two clans. With the chief's death in 1960, Orabe was left without proper parents, an omen of the end of Orabe. The Eagle Clan Migrations Three branches of the Eagle Clan, the Condor, Eagle, and Gray Eagle, were among the last to arrive on this fourth world. They moved south along the high mountains in South America and settled with the two branches of the Sun Clan, the Forehead and the Sun, which had preceded them. Here they all built up a great city of stone. The two chief deities were the Sun and the Condor, whose images and symbols were used everywhere. In time, the two clans began to quarrel, the Sun Clan claiming that the Sun was more powerful than the Eagle Clan deity, Kwaktoko, and the Eagle Clan asserting that the Sun Clan could not send its prayers to the Sun without using eagle feathers, or pahos. Finally, when it became obvious that the two clans could no longer live together, the leaders agreed that they would postpone, proving their power to each other until they met again. They would postpone proving their power to each other until they met again at their permanent place of settlement. The conditions were these. If the Sun Clan during its long migration used the power of the Sun for evil purposes, the Eagle Clan could claw out the eyes of the Sun Chief and claim the power of the Sun. Conversely, if the Eagle Clan during its journey ever inflicted the disease of the Eagle, Guanapala, twitching in the head and body, upon others, the Sun Clan would blind the Eagle Chief and claim the power of the eagle. Receiving from Kwatoko the sign that they were to move out first, the eagle clan migrated northward. Their first settlement was near what is now Mexico City. At Coahuacoco, Willow Springs, south of present Santa Rosa, New Mexico, they turned eastward to the Atlantic Ocean where they built a shrine, Tutuskia stones in a circle opening to the east with feathers inside. Westward across the continent, they migrated to their third paso on the shore of the Pacific. Returning eastward, they settled in Hukpivi, Windy Valley near St. George, Utah. Then they turned north until Quataco appeared and told them to make a shrine here for their last paso. Moving slowly south now, they met other clans with whom they settled at Wupovaki, a large reed field near Ganado at Awatovi, and finally at Posovi, the sharp corner east of Arabi. The Eagle Chief then went to the Bear Chief to request admittance into Arabi. Asked the Bear Chief, Have your people ever used the power of your deity against other people? No, replied the Eagle Chief. We have done only as we were directed to do by our guardian spirit, Huatoko. If you are permitted to settle in our village and become one of our families of clans, what ceremony or power can you contribute for the good of all? Huatoko commands all the upper air. He is the master of height. 
He is the watchful eye that will keep a lookout for the approach of people who would try to overpower us and take away our knowledge. His are the feathers that carry our thoughts and prayers to our Father's Son, the pahos you may use in all your ceremonies. Good, said the bear chief. But in return for these powers, asked the eagle chief, what land will you give my people for their cultivation? All the land north of Orabi, in the valley west of Savutwika, Chaptrock Point, the bear chief said promptly, it shall be known as Kwavasa, Eagle Land, from this time on. So the Eagle Clan moved into Warabi. Thereafter it served as the watchful eye for the village, giving warning of the approach of the Davasu, one who pounds an enemy's head, the Hopi name for Navajos. When they came to destroy the crops, also it permitted use of Eagle Feather for Pajos, when it came time to destroy the crops. So the Eagle Clan moved into Orabi. Thereafter, it served as the watchful eye for the village, giving warning to the approach of the Tavasa, one who pounds an enemy's head, the Hopi name for Navajos. When they came to destroy the crops, Oh, the Navajo came and destroyed the Hopi crops. Okay. Also, it permitted use of eagle feathers for pahos in all ceremonies. After many years, the Sun Clan came to Orabe requesting admittance, remembering the quarrel and the agreements between their two clans at the beginning of their migrations. The Eagle Clan exercised its duty of keeping a watchful eye on the meetings between the Sun bear chiefs. At last the eagle chief said, we have found out that the Sun Clan during its migration used the power of the Sun wrongly and so gained advantage over other people. In attempting to melt the back door, uh, the ice up at the top, that's how they used their power wrongly. We will not claw out the eyes of the Sun Chief and claim the power of the Sun as our forefathers agreed. But the Sun Clan has lost its true power. It must lose all the advantages it has gained over other people. This we say. That is the way it was. The Sun Clan was admitted into Orabi, but given inferior and hilly land far south of the village. And never since then has the Sun Clan exercised a great power in any ceremony. So it is that the Eagle Clan represents the east, with the bear clan standing to the west, and the parrot clan to the south, and the badger clan to the north. These are the four most important Hopi clans today. Six, the mysterious red city of the south. Far in the tropical south, no one knows where, lay the mysterious red city of the south, Palatquapi, Red House. Perhaps it was in Mexico, perhaps in Central or South America. Wherever it was, it is still an important landmark in the geography of Hopi legend. Clan after clan included it in their migrations. 
hundreds of tales are told about it. With all their variations and contradictions, the Kachina clan version may come closer to the truth, for it was the Kachinas who built Palakwapi. Upon their emergence, a number of clans headed by the Bear Clan and including the Coyote and Parrot Clans chose to go south. They were accompanied by a number of the Kachina people. These Kachina people did not come to the fourth world like the rest of the people. In fact, they were not people. They were spirits sent to give help and guidance to the clans, taking the form of ordinary people and being commonly regarded as the Kachina clan. And in part three, there's a fuller explanation given of the Kachina clan. Wait for it. Having reached the southern Paso and left their signatures, the clans returned north until they reached the Red Earth Place, where the Kachina people instructed them to settle and build. From a small village, it grew into a large city, a great cultural and religious city center, the mysterious Red City of the South. Under the supervision of the Kachina people, Palakpawapi was built in three sections, completely surrounded by a high wall. The first section was reserved for ceremonial purposes. The second section, adjoining it, contained storage rooms for food, and the third section comprised the living quarters for the people of all clans. Underneath all three sections ran the river. The ceremonial section was the most important. There were no kivas then, as there are today, divided to accommodate the initiates and ceremonial participants. Instead, there were two buildings, one for initiates and one for ceremonial purposes. The ceremonial building was four stories high, terraced like the pueblos we see today. The main door opened to the east, and there were two smaller doors facing north and south. On the first or ground floor, the Kachina people taught initiates the history and the meaning of the three previous worlds and the purpose of this fourth world to which man had emerged. On the second floor, they taught the structure and functions of the human body, and that the highest function of the mind was to understand how the one great spirit worked within man. The spirit or Kachina people taught this so that the people would not become evil again and this fourth world be destroyed like the first three. In the third story, initiates were taught the workings of nature and the uses of all kinds of plant life. Although the people were still relatively pure and there was little sickness, some evils would come, bringing resultant illnesses, and for each one, there was a plant remedy for the people to remember. The fourth story was smaller than the three below, making the ceremonial building resemble a pyramid. To this top level were admitted only initiates of great conscience who had acquired a deep knowledge of the laws of nature. Here they were taught the workings of the planetary system, how the stars affected the climate, the crops, and man himself. 
Here, too, they learned about the open door on the top of their heads and how to keep it open and so converse with their Creator. This description of Palakwapi was given by the late chief Tawakwaptiwa several years before his death in 1960. No one knows where Palakwapi might have been. Some of our Hopi spokesmen who were able to read Hopi meanings from symbols and pictographs carved on the Mayan, Mayan stelae and temple walls believed that the center of the Mayan old empire, Pelinque in Chiapas, Mexico, was the Hopi legendary city of Palatquapi. Others to whom I have described the plan and ruins of Casa Grande in Chihuahua, Mexico, recognize many similarities between it and Palatquapi as, as described by Chief Tawak Waptiwa. Covering 237 acres, the immense walled city of Casa Grande was divided into ceremonial sections and a residential section divided by a great open plaza. In the ceremonial precinct have been excavated an immense ball court, a truncated pyramid, and great mounds relatively shaped like a parrot, a serpent, and a cross. The dwelling area containing hundreds of rooms, many with T-shaped doorways and pens for confining both parrots and turkeys. Inside the city was a large reservoir filled with a ditch run by the river a few miles to the a large reservoir filled by a ditch run from the river a few miles to the north. From this reservoir, rock-walled underground ducts led throughout the city. They possibly served as both a water system and a sewage system. These great ruins have been unearthed only within the last two years. We're talking 1963 here. By the Amerindian Foundation of Dragoon, Arizona and the National Institute of Anthropology and History of Mexico. They are not yet completely excavated and a report on them has not yet been published. This lends additional interest to the interpretation of our Hopi spokesman of the use of the mounds. According to the Casa Grandes, according to them, the Casa Grandes was occupied by Hopi clans, whether or not it was the legendary Palakwapi. This tends to confirm the fact that it shows an amalgamation of the cultural stream northward from the Valley of Mexico and another southward from the southwest, indicating that it lay on a migratory path route between them. The Parrot Mound was used by the Parrot Clan for a special ceremony conducted every spring. The Parrot Clan, as we know, was the Mother Clan, which possessed the power of reproduction. Hence, the parrot-shaped mound was made out of earth, represented the Mother Earth. To fertilize it each spring, a parrot clan member, a young girl of 12, was ceremonially garbed in a dress and headdress made of parrot feathers and given an egg made out of cornmeal. Carrying this on a plaque to the, mountain, to the mound at sunrise, she would deposit it in an opening on the east side, where the first ray of the rising sun would strike it. The 
corn the cornmeal egg of Mother Earth would thus be fertilized by Father Son and give forth crops of corn, symbolizing the mother milk food of mankind. The snake mound was similarly used by the snake clan in a blessing rite for the six directional snake deities, there being no kivas at Casa Grande. The same ritual is now conducted in the kiva at Orabi, where there are symbolic representations of six shrines placed some distance away from the village. Hence, there should be found six directional shrines somewhere about Casa Grande. The pyramid of the cross mound, the pyramid and the cross mound were the most important, for they were used by the Kachina clan. The cross mound, whose arms were oriented to the four primary directions, pointed to the four worlds, the west being the first world, south the second world, east the third world, and north the present fourth world. At the end of each arm was a round platform. These symbolized the four worlds and the unleavened bread tied to the thorny branch carried by the Kachina clan people during the morning after the Niman Kachina ceremony. Pictograph signatures of Hopi clans have been found on the east side of the Great Divide running through Chihuahua. It will be interesting to learn if the excavations of Casa Grande find, find more near the great ruins to confirm these interpretations. That was all a footnote. The two chief spirits of the Kachina people giving their instructions were Iototo and Aholi. Iototo worked especially with the Bear Clan and Aholi undertook to give special instructions to the Corn Clan and its branch, the Side Corn Clan. The Corn Clan was told it was to be very important in the future. For when the people had reached their permanent settlement, there would come three other races of people which would be identified by the colors of the corn they raised the black, the yellow, and the white. They themselves were represented by the red corn, whose color symbolized the west from which they had come to this fourth world. Hence, the corn clan was instructed to see that all the clans did not fail to raise corn of all four colors, the red, black, yellow, and white to ensure the coming of all races to live in brotherhood in this new world. As a token of their leadership, the Bear Clan and the Corn Clan were each given a scepter or a chief's stick called a Mongko or a Mongui from the combination from Mongui which means chief and Koko which means stick <laughs> to carry when performing their religious duties. This Mongko is the supreme symbol of spiritual power and authority and is still carried in Hopi rituals. The Coyote clan was also assigned its proper place among the plans, clans, being designate, designated 
to come last to close the door. There were two divisions. The water coyotes' main duty was to inspect the route of the migration to be followed in order to know the nature of the country the clans were to traverse. They were given special powers, enabling them to cross great rivers and lakes. When the clans settled at one place for a long period, a member of the Coyote clan called Kalitaka, the guardian, always acted as guard. Kalitaka also brought up the rear of every ceremonial procession to guard against evil. So Palakwapi grew and prospered. No crops were left unattended. No food was wasted. The great storage rooms in the second section of the city were kept filled at all times. As the clans came in, they were assigned quarters in the third section. The young men and women were taught crafts and were given religious instruction before they resumed their migrations. The time came, however, when evil entered. Perhaps it was because the people found life too easy and did not resume their migrations. Other people laid the blame on the spider clan, which had returned from the back door to the north, where they had used their powers wrongfully. According to the Bear Clan version, the Spider Clan was refused admittance to Palakwapi for the reason, for that reason. So one early dawn, the clan attacked the city. One of the Kachina women, Hihiwuti, had just got up and was putting up her hair when the attack came. Immediately, she threw on her clothes, grabbed up a bow and arrows, and rushed out to help defend the city. That is why the Hihiwuti, the warrior mother Kachina in Hopi, today wears part of her hair loose, and her clothes are so untidy. Another Kachina, Chakwena, gasped out, Hoo-hoo! as he was shot by enemy arrows, the only sound the Chakwayana Kachina now makes during Hopi rituals. <laughs> day after day, the people resisted the Spider Clan's attack. The walls were strong, the gates were stout, but still they were driven out of the third section of the great city. Then they were driven out of the second section, where all their surplus food was stored. Finally, they made their last stand in the ceremonial section across from one corner of which ran a small river. And now a terrible thing happened. The spider clan began to cut off the river to deprive the defenders of water. Immediately a council meeting was called in the barricaded city. It was decided to dig a tunnel underneath the river through which all clans could escape. Immediately all men were put to work and in several days the tunnel was completed. That night another meeting was held to plan the escape of the clans. This is the way it will be done, said the Kachina leader. The Bear Clan will go through first, then the Corn Clan and the Parrot Clan. The Coyote Clan will go last as always. As each clan emerges on the other side of the river, it must resume its migration immediately in the direction ordained for it. 
The day will come when your migrations are completed and you are all united again. But So remember, all that we have taught you, properly observe your ceremonies and keep the doors on the top of your heads open. Now we, the Kachina people, will remain here to defend the city while you make your escape in the darkness. The time for us to go to our far-off planets and stars has not yet come, but it is time for us to leave you. We will go by our powers to a certain high mountain which you will know, where we will await your messages of need. So whenever you need us or our help, just make your pajos. Now another thing, we are spirit people and we will not be seen again by you or your people. But you must remember us by wearing our masks and our costumes at the proper ceremonial times. Those who do so must be only those persons who have acquired the knowledge and the wisdom we have taught you. And these persons of flesh and blood will then bear our names and be known as the Kachina clan. Now it is dark. The time has come. Go quickly. The escape began in the order prescribed. But in the hurry and bustle, the leader of the side corn clan forgot to take with him his mongol, or the law of laws. So it was that Aholi did not carry a mongol when he arrived at Orabi long afterward. So too is it a prophecy that Kachina dances will be the last Hopi rituals to be done away with, when all else taught to the people is forsaken and forgotten. After making their escape, the clans resumed their migrations. The Kachina clan reached the Pasos of the directions and made many settlements before arriving at Orabi. These include Soichiyopu, cliff along Cedar Ridge, the ruins now south of Muvatukovi, snow-capped mountain in Oak Creek Canyon, Kwanevi near the two peaks north of snow-capped mountains, and Wapatki. The real Kachinas, as we know, are spirits from other planets and stars, but the high mountain to which messages are directed to them is the San Francisco mountain, northwest of Orabi, near Flagstaff. Wanima and the short rainbow. The short well or cistern and the deep well clans are branches of the water clan. Settled a short time in a village near Globe, Arizona, when they were slowly migrating from the south. Differences arose between two brothers who were the respective leaders of the two clans. In order to choose which should be the chief of the village, the people arranged for a public demonstration of their powers. Corn was planted by each of the brothers, and when it came up, each prayed to his clan deity to send rain. Rain came, falling on the corn of the younger brother, who prayed to Panayoikasi, 
but not on the corn of the older brother. This made the older brother so angry that he demanded that the younger brother leave. So the younger brother and his followers migrated northeast to the village of Wanima, taking with them the Wuya, or Tiponi, of their deity Panayoikayasi. Panayoikayasi means short rainbow. This is why he is the deity of the water clan, and his image is painted with vertical rainbow stripes of orange, green, blue, and black. Modern Hopis say that when it rains, the short rainbow stands over Tutuqui, the volcanic butte southeast from Orabi, in the direction of Wanima. Short rainbow links the sky and earth, having power over the atmosphere when the sun is shining, and power over the earth when rain falls upon it. With this beneficent power, he gives beauty and pollen to the plants and flowers upon which insects depend for life. Figure 19 showing an insect drawn with a flower illustrates this beneficent aspect of their deity's power. It also symbolizes Kuan Lelenta, to make beautiful surroundings, the guardian spirit of sunflowers and deity of the Sunflower Clan. Sunflowers are important to the Hopis. In the women's ceremony, two maidens come out into the plaza with faces painted with the ground petals of sunflowers. Hence the face is round, representing its female aspect. This is also the meaning of the decorative symbols shown in figure 20 which were painted on a pottery bowl found within the ruins. They are sunflower maidens, for sunflowers are living persons imbued with life by the deities and our father's son, just as we are. Eventually, it came time for the clans to abandon Wanima and continue their migration. Figure 21 shows a snake in the center identifying the snake clan. In the oblong below are depicted three waves of water revealing the water clan and revealing that it was on its third round of their migrations, having gone to the shores of one ocean three times. The two figures on the right represent the two branches of the water clan. The larger man representing the deep well clan and the smaller man the short well clan. Separating without trouble, the snake clan went southward and the deep well clan went, went northward. The latter finally entering Orabi from the northeast. This is shown by the petroglyph carved above the snake. The center broken line represents the terraced walls of the village. The maze to the south or to the north, the route of the Deep Well Clan, and that to the south, the direction taken by the Snake Clan. Figure 22 again substantiates tradition that the Snake Clan had been associated with the Water Clan as shown by the snake on the upper part of the oblong. Within it are plants representing a plentiful food supply. Below this is pictured the well-known humpbacked flute player Cocopelli, who, of course, 
belongs to the Flute Society. Cocopali Cocopalau suggests that the Flute and Sun clans were also present at Wanima, for the two clans worked together in those rituals which helped the sun to turn back at the times of the winter and summer solstices. Figure 23 shows the marking of a spider in one of the offspring which it hatches, indicating the presence of the spider clan. The 11 crossbars on the line in figure 24 indicate the number of years that the people stayed at Wanima, and the two branches at the end show the separation of the clans when they departed. With the deep well people went the spirit of their deity, Panai Yasi shown hanging down over their heads with their arms upraised. But behind them they left his image lying face down as shown to give the deserted village spiritual protection. Such figures were always left as cornerstones to attest the village's occupancy by Hopi clans and to welcome them back if they ever returned. According to tradition, Wuyas were left in abandoned villages located near the four highest points surrounding Orabi. A line drawn from Winima to Orabi and extended northwest indicates Toknavi, Hard Rock Mountain or Navajo Mountain, which is uh, still around. Somewhere near here there is said to be another ruin formerly occupied by the Fire and Ghost Clan and it still containing its wuya. Similarly, another line drawn through Orabi at a right angle designates Mesa Verde to the northeast, in one of whose ruins was buried the wuya of the Eagle Clan. And the San Francisco peaks to the southwest, former home of the Kachina Clan, these four highest points are the cloud houses of the direction, Wanima, as we have stated, being also known as Palaomalki, or Red Cloud House. The Wuyas left in the ruins about each guarding the land about the central point of Arabi. Panayokyasi possessed, in addition to his beneficent power, a great destructive force. Some people say this derives from his power to link sky and earth, which magnetically attract each other during storms. Other people say it is in the form of an invisible poisonous gas. Hence his image was laid face down in the crypt, for if it had been left face up, the time would have come when the two most powerful peoples on earth faced each other with this terrible destructive force. In addition to this safeguard, Paneyokoyasi's right arm was broken off so that the Hopi people could never use his destructive power. Left with his image was a water jar symbolic of the oceans reached by the water clan during its migration. In it were beads of shell which also came from the seas, symbolizing the hearing aids by which one invokes their power. 
With these were also left beads of turquoise given to all deities as tokens of honor and respect. For such chosposi, bluebird eye, signifies spiritual understanding between two beings. Having sealed up the crypt in the kiva, the people abandoned Wanima and resumed their migration. After wandering to many places, they arrived at Orabi, where they were permitted to build a permanent home. The site picked by the leader of the water clan was on the south edge of the village near Tipkyavi, which means the womb, used in all important ceremonies. Here a special kiva was built, and on all four walls were painted murals for use in water clan rituals. When this was done, the leader went to a high place at evening and looked toward the southeast. In a little while, Panyayoitkyasi revealed himself as a short rainbow, signifying that he had heard the people's prayers and would always bring moisture for their fields. On August 11, 1960, national news syndicates reported the discovery of a small stone image near Vernon, Arizona, as one of the most important discoveries of the 20th century in Southwest archaeology. The field, the find, was announced by the Chicago Natural History Museum upon receipt of a message from Dr. Paul S. Martin, its chief curator, of anthropology at the excavation site. The image was nine inches high, carved from sandstone, painted with vertical stripes of orange, green, blue, and black, and with its right arm missing. It was found in a secret crypt within one of the largest rectangular kivas ever excavated in the southwest. The figure, estimated to be about 700 years old, was believed to be a kachina, similar to those still being carved of wood by modern Hopi Indians. To my knowledge, Dr. Martin said in his message, no one has ever before found a kachina of either wood or stone in a kiva. As far as I can determine, the image is unique. White Bear and I, upon reading of this discovery, felt that it was indeed important, but not for the reason given. A kachina is a spirit of any kind, a star, a mountain, a plant, an animal, or an invisible force. So also is the man who impersonates the spirit during ceremonials, wearing this sacred mask and costume, which invest him with its power. The small image, like a doll carved of cottonwood and given to children so that they may become familiar with the many different kachinas, is popularly known now also as a kachina, but it is not invested with sacred power. It is not used in ceremonies, and it is not preserved in the kiva. Hence, we did not believe the Vernon image was a kachina. From the circumstances surrounding the find, we believed it to be a Wuya, or a Tiponi. A Wuya is a clan deity, and a Tiponi is a fetish of stone or wood 
representing the deity and belonging to the clan. Thus, the Tiponi is seldom brought out into the open and is not generally known, being reserved for ritual use in the Kiva. In common usage, the names of Wuya and Tiponi are often synonymous. The oldest member of the clan and keeper of the Tiponi is also called a Wuya. To identify the image, we made two trips to the excavation site. During White Bear's first trip, Dr. Martin kindly exhibited the image and the small jar containing several beads of stone, jet, shell, and turquoise found with it. A photograph of it was then shown to several Hopis, who identified the image as one of Panayoika Yasi. Several weeks after the excavating party had left, we returned to explore the area more thoroughly. The ruins of the village lay by a small knoll in a valley only four miles from Springerville, rather than close to Vernon, about 25 miles away. The kiva was approximately 50 feet long and 47 feet wide. The secret crypt was in the floor on the south side. A quarter mile to the north, another unexcavated portion of the village, or a different settlement, occupied a rocky butte. Examination of the original walls of the ruins seemed to indicate that the village was the site of three different settlements. The walls consisted of successive layers of large stones alternating with small stones, the same construction as the walls of the ruins at Chaco Canyon. On the large stones were several signatures of the water clan, as shown in figure 25. The one on the left, representing water, is also found in color at Chaco Canyon. The figure with the protruding tail, shown to the right, represents a tadpole before it drops its tail to become a frog, a symbol of the water clan. Among numerous petroglyphs found on the cliff just across the valley, those shown in 26 are particularly interesting. The drawing to the upper left represents a cloud reflected in the water below. In the drawing to the upper right, the cloud terrace symbol formed by the figure's upraised arms is repeated upside down by his legs in the same manner as in the cloud to the left. Sorry, I gotta read it again. The drawing to the upper left represents a cloud reflected in the water below. The drawing to the upper right, the cloud terrace symbol formed by the figure's upraised arms is repeated upside down by his legs in the same manner as in the water cloud to the left. The figure represents Panayoyasi, deity of the water clan. The drawing under them shows four large waves of water, indicating the four migration routes to be completed by the water clan. All these markings indicated that the water clan was one of the principal clans which occupied the village. At a later time, other Hopi clans occupied the village, which is still known as Palau Malki, the Red Cloud House, because it lies to the southeast.
east, east being symbolized by red. The area is also well known to the Zunis who have a shrine nearby and regarded as the ancestral home of the Koyamiski or Mudheads. Today, both Hopis and Zunis more commonly know the village as Wanima, a name combining a Hopi and a Zuni word. Nima in Hopi means going home. The village thus derives its name from the fact that it was settled by Hopi and Zuni clans during their migratory way home to a permanent settlement in Orabi and Zuni. It seemed apparent to our Hopi spokesman that from oral tradition in all the petroglyphs as pictured above, we had identified the ruins of the village and the image found within it. More satisfactory proof loomed up in one last carving on a cliff several miles away from the ruin. Depicting the village of Winema, it is repro reproduced in figure 27. The small figure at the bottom indicated the people who lived there, the corn which supplied their food, and the horizontal footprints of several clans who stayed with the short well and deep well clans. Vertif vertical footprints would have indicated they had gone on north or south. The large figure in the center is that of Panayoikyasi. Anayoikyasi, establishing a spiritual tie with the people. Its archaeologists had discovered this picture writing and had been able to read it, if archaeologists had discovered this picture writing and had been able to read it, they would have known where to find his stone image without excavating the whole ruin. The small black square on the right, south side, shows the location of the secret crypt. To substitute further, all these rock carvings and oral traditions we ascertained from one of the few remaining members of the Deepwell clan, that Panayoik Yasi was still its deity. Its Wuya or Tiponi he remembered well. It was a small image carved of wood and painted with vertical rainbow stripes of orange, green, blue, and black, just like the Vernon image. During the Orabi split in 1906, when the Deep Well clan moved out of Orabi, its members left it buried in a secret crypt where it still remains, perhaps to be unearthed by future archaeologists when old Orabi is finally and completely abandoned. Ten years later, in 1916, the paintings of the water clan Kiva at Orabi were found and retraced, and there are many wonderful legends about them, and Panyayoikyasi, those stories are still told today. A member of the water clan living in another village also told us that its tiponi, a wooden image of the same god, Panyayoikyasi, was still planted in front of the one-horn altar during the Wu-Wu-Chim ceremony in which he participated. The great importance of the Vernon discovery is that it confirms the rock writing and the great body of living tradition about it, and without that confirmation, the image itself would be comparatively meaningless. It establishes a link between the Hopis 
and still another prehistoric ruin, illustrating how Southwest archaeology may be read in light of the living ceremonialism that exists today. 7. The Journey of the Twins The legend of the journey of the little twins contains another version of the destruction of Palatquapi. It ties together two chief kachinas, Iotutu and Aholi, and the water clan and the side corn clan. The Hopis believe it is illustrated by several murals on the walls of the Kiva in the great ruin along the Rio Grande known as Kuana. For a long time the water clan lived at Palatquapi, that mysterious red city in the south, helping to build it into a great cultural and religious center. They were able to do this because their two guardian spirits or deities helped them. Iotutu was the deity of the bear clan, and still today he is the supreme chief of all the Kachinas who come each year to bring blessings to the Hopi people. He's always accompanied by the Ahuli Kachina, dressed in his strange conical head mask and tropical colored shoulder cape, for Ahuli was the tutelary deity of the water clan and custodian of the magic water jar. After many years, Ioto and Aholi warned the people that they were breaking the law by remaining at Palatquapi. They must migrate to the Four Pasos before settling down permanently. Yet the people kept staying. They liked their great red city, the tropical climate and the rich land that made life easy for them. So their two deities, ordered the water clan to destroy the city. This is how it was done. The chief called his son, a 16-year-old boy, into his kiva and instructed him to get up early every morning, run toward the mountain, and then plant a stick in the ground where he stopped. The boy did so, planting the stick a little further each day as he became stronger. The chief again called him into the kiva, you are gaining strength and endurance. Now here are four masks, a black one, a red one, a brown one, and a white one. Each morning put on a different one when you run. Then come back to me at the end of four days. On the fourth day he was instructed to put on all four masks, one on top of the other. The chief then dressed him in a ceremonial kirtle painted his body and said, Go to a different quarter of the city each night, groan and make noises. Hearing the strange noises and groans as the city began to rumble, the people began to worry. The fastest runners tried to catch the young man, but he was too swift for them. Then the chief told his son, You have awakened our people to their wickedness. Tonight you must let them catch you. Only in this way, perhaps, can we save our people. That night the young runner allowed himself to be caught and brought back to a great fire in the center of the village. By its light the elders took off his masks one by one, only to recognize the son of their chief. 
Why have you done this? They demanded angrily. So you will admit your wickedness before it is too late, he replied. But I see I have failed to lead you out of the city. Now you will kill me. This I know. But be sure you bury me here in the plaza, so you will see still more signs. The elders killed him with a flint knife and buried him in the plaza. Next morning one of his fingers was sticking up out of the grave, and every morning still another finger stuck up. On the fourth morning a serpent rose out of the grave, and as he moved his coils the earth shook and a few buildings toppled. By noon half the great city had fallen, hundreds of people had been killed, and the rest of them in great panic were fleeing the smoking ruins. One house remained untouched. It was the home of a couple who had twins, a boy and a girl. Twins, as everybody knows, have a special power and are called Jovio Oya, young deer. The mother and father had gone out into the fields that morning. Believing their children had been killed by the destruction of the city, they joined the fleeing refugees. The twins, however, remained in their house all that dreadful day and night. Next morning, when they came out, they found the city in ruins and all the people gone. Deciding to follow their tracks, the little boy packed some food in the blanket, secured his bow and arrows, and took up the trail with his sister. Traveling was difficult. Their food gave out. The little girl cried. But the little boy kept trailing a deer and finally shot it. The deer, who was not dead yet when the boy reached it, said, Your people have traveled so far ahead and your sister is so weak. You will never catch up with them. So I came here to help you. Now listen to my instructions. When I die, cut off some meat and cook it for your supper. But do not break any of my bones. Save the back part of the hind leg bone from the lower joint to the hoof. Shape it into an awl. With this, you can make yourself new clothes from my skin to keep you warm. But always carry the mochi around your neck, the awl around your neck. I will come every night then and carry you on my back. Eventually, the twins arrived at a prosperous big village far to the north along the Rio Grande River. Its name was Kowawamwavi, Kachina House. For a long time, the twins stayed there, and for many years afterward, the Rio Grande villages called them and their people Mochis, or All People, a name that the Spaniards later distorted into Mokis, which means dead people. The Kuaua murals. Kawa Wai Mave is now known as the prehistoric Pueblo of Kuaua, whose ruins lie on a high bluff overlooking the Rio Grande just west of Baranillo, New Mexico. One of the rectangular kivas has been restored with beautiful mural paintings in full color on the walls. According to our Hopi informants, a series of them depicts 
depicts the story of the little twins who fled from the mysterious red city of the South. Figure 28 represents the twins. It's a uh, headless body, one half white and one half is dark. The dark half of the body with the hand holding a ceremonial cane or rod represents the boy. The light side with a hanging breast and a hand holding feathers represents the girl. The circle joining them at the solar plexus indicates they are of the same blood. They are soon to meet the deer as shown by the hands printed above the deer tracks. Figure 29 depicts how they met and killed the deer. The boy's arrow passes through the deer's body. The dots flowing from the ear's mouth to the children's hand outstretched for help indicate the instruction the deer gave them. The two hands holding the deer's back legs show that the boy followed instructions to take the bone from the deer's lower back leg and make an awl from it. The children then leave their footprints, showing they traveled toward the northwest, as this mural figure was painted on the west wall of the Kiva. The Rio Grande River, which they reached, is shown in figure 30 drawn on the north wall. Here the children were called the Mochi, or the All People, the beginning of the All Clan. This clan has died out, but a branch of it is known as the Tepnyan, the Thorny Stick Clan, which now carves its ceremonial all, ceremonial all from hard wood. There's a Sipapuni image, figure 31, the place of emergence. The dark cloud terrace above represents the male power possessed by the boy. And the light cloud terrace to the left, the female power possessed by the girl. The Sipapuni is shown again in figure 32 at the feet of the girl, who is carrying out part of the ritual developed by the All Clan. The boy participates in the ritual as shown in figure 33 to the right of the Mongwikuro, the magic water jar which the leader plants in the ground. It's pointed at the bottom for this purpose. The water is, it produces is represented by the sprinkling to the left. The woman's ceremonial water jar in figure 34 is rounded on the bottom. Figure 35 clearly depicts the leader of the Kelnyam, the Red Hawk Clan, as shown by the dotted markings on his legs and the Red Hawk standard he is holding. He uses this standard only during the Wuwuchim ceremony and at its conclusion he carries it to the Mong, or the Chief Kiva. The Nalung Nang Momwit, the four directional and spiritual leaders of the four major clans, Parrot, Bear, Eagle, and Badger, are shown in figure 36. 
None of these figures have heads. I don't know why, but I imagine he will explain it. And then as I look to the far right, I see there is one figure who does have a head and has a single black hand. And the head has no eyes, so it appears to be wearing a mask. And if I look more closely at it, I see no, it's, it's once again a headless figure, but he's standing in front of what appeared to be possibly mountains. The religious chief of the Bear Clan stands at the extreme right. Okay, that's the guy I was talking about. In front of a cloud terrace altar to perform a ceremony. So the thing behind him is a cloud terrace altar. And that ceremony brings moisture to the soil below for the growth of the corn stalks shown between all the figures. Figure 37 depicts Kualitaka, the traditional Hopi guardian. He carries a hotango, a quiver of arrows, and wears a deerskin. A portion of his white knitted leggings is shown. These namusavau shin coverings are worn only by members of the coyote clan. The birds in figure 38 are swallows whose feathers the Hawk Clan uses to send out their messages and prayers during Wu-Wu-Chim, because the swallow is the swiftest of all birds. The one on the left is ascending its path before complete darkness covers all the earth, as shown by the short horizontal line across its path. The seven dots near the swallow's beak represent the seven stars in the Pleiades. The nine larger dots, the nine stars in Corona or Lacon, also the name of the women's society and its ceremonial. And its three inner dots are, or stars are feminine Kalitaka and the two throwers whom she leads into the circle of dancers during the ceremony. The swallow on the right shows the ceremony has progressed past midnight. The cross lines is darker and longer, and the distance from it to the swallow's beak is shorter. Also, the nine stars of Lecon have been moved up to the swallow's beak, and the Pleiades have vanished. This illustrates that the Kiva ceremonies in ancient Kuaua, as those in modern Hopi Kivas, were timed by the position of the stars. Figure 39 represents one of the hero twins, Pokang Hoya. At the time of creation, he was given the duty of solidifying the earth. Hence, he is always painted in dark earth colors and carries the makwampi, the rounded stick with which he pointed to the soft earth and said, you shall become solid. For protection against evil, he carries the white shield called Patuavota. The, the dotted lines mean rain. The cloud terrace above him and the lightning coming down to the water jar denote power. Figure 40 is the head of the corn clan, who 
whose power extends over all the directional colored corn, the red, yellow, white, and black, the white in his hand being the purest in nature. The origin of the side corn clan. Meanwhile, the people fleeing from Palacuapi reached northern Mexico. Here the two clans separated. Iotutu bearing leading the Bear Clan to the northwest, and Aholi guiding the Water Clan northeast to settle for a time near the site of the present Silver City, New Mexico. The Water Clan then turned east and went to the Atlantic, leaving along its route pieces of pottery marked with spiral turning counterclockwise. On their way back to the Pacific, their settlements were marked with spirals turning clockwise. After coming back to the Divide, they turned north until they were blocked with ice and snow. Having migrated south, they settled at Mesa Verde with a number of other clans and then traveled on with the side corn clan to Masipa, Gray Spring, near present Zuni and then to a village in Salt River Canyon. By this time, the two clans had intermarried and two young men having different mothers but the same father began to quarrel over who was to be leader. They agreed to settle the matter with a contest, each planting a field of corn and praying for rain. The younger brother's corn received the rain he was declared the leader, and his fathers were given the privilege of naming their children after both the water clan and the side corn clan. When the older brother's corn dried up, it was just beginning to have picias, the side corn, on the stalks. Therefore, his followers could not give their children water names. They could name them only after corn. The group under the younger water clan leader went west. The side corn people went northeast. For a long time, the water clan stayed at Povokivia, the Swallow Spring, near present Montezuma Castle. Then they built a village on top of Gray Mountain, lived near Moenkopi, settled near Kisiwu, and finally came to Suvutuika, the Rock Point Hammered about seven miles north of Oravi, the rock place on high. Recognizing Oravi, or Orabi, as their permanent place of development or settlement, and finding out that the Bear Clan had already arrived, they sent word that they were now ready to unite with their forefathers' brothers. Great preparations were made for their admission. Iotutu, the deity of the Bear Clan, and Aholi, deity of the Water Clan, welcomed them at the foot of the mesa, escorted them up to the village, and led them to the Tipkyava, the womb in the plaza. Here, a sacred well, symbolizing by a small hole, symbolized by a small hole, had been dug, and once again, as at the beginning of their migration, the two clans sealed the bonds between them. Then in the same ceremony that is still performed every year, 
Iotutu and Eholi went through the rituals which ended as they poured water into the hole from the water jars on their sacred mongols. The Sidecorn clan's account of its migration gives something interesting in addition and in its variations. This pl- takes place during the Pawamu ceremony as described in part 3. The water clan did not have a mongo until it arrived in Orabi when it first borrowed one from the thorny stick or hard stick clan. According to this, people of the side Corden clan were members of the water clan when Palakwapi was destroyed. It was near Globe that the two brothers contested for leadership, which confirms the version given by the informants who related the history of Winema. The side corn places of settlement after the two groups separated include Mowabi, picking cotton from pods, and Snowtop Mountain or the San Francisco Peaks, and in the highest part of Black Mesa, Siova, Onion Springs, the Rock Point Hammered about eight miles north of Arabi. After requesting admittance to Arabi, the side corn people lived on the east side of the village at Sikiyawa, the Yellowstone, for two or three years before moving into Arabi. Apparently there were many more divisions of this large clan as it kept growing. One of these came about when two groups entered a contest to find out which could bring the most rain. One group called enough rain to fill a deep cistern and thereafter became known as the Wupatki, the Deep Well Clan. The losing group became the Short Well Clan, finally settling at Walpi. According to the Walpi people, they called on the Deep Well Clan for help during the drought, so both clans were united again on First Mesa and are living here today in Hano. The Orabi version relates that the main water clan settled in Awatovi and then moved to Orabi, where the two groups were united. The Snake and Lizard Clans The Lizard Clan began its migration northward by following almost the same route taken by the snake, spider, fire, sun, and flute clans as they traveled north to the back door of the continent. Turned back by the ice, the lizard clan settled in the village of Homowala, Round Top Cape, near St. George, Utah, where lay the ruins of a village left by the snake clan. From here, they traveled southwest, settling for a time near Needles, California. Here on the cliffs along the river may still be found their inscriptions of the horned toad, Machaca, and the lizard deities of the clan. The people liked this location so much that they stopped here after they had traveled westward to the Pacific and back. This time, they found evidence that the Fire Clan and the Water Clan had also stopped to work the fertile bottomlands, but had quarreled, 
and the fire clan had driven the water clan away. The story was told by one great figure on the ground made of rocks. It was the figure of the fire clan deity, arms outstretched to show that the fire clan had driven the water clan away and was barring its return. After migrating across the continent to the eastern Paso on the shore of the Atlantic, the lizard clan again returned to the rich bottomlands along the Colorado near Parker, Arizona. Here it met the snake clan, and for a long time the two clans worked peaceably together, raising corn, beans, cotton, and tobacco. When the bow clan arrived, the people knew that they were in for trouble, for the bow clan always carried evil. It developed when the bow clan planted corn on lizard land, claiming the ground as its own. The lizard clan protested, but the bow clan called upon its deity, Saviki. His features were evil. He had a dark face with round eyes, and he wore dark clothes. Saviki counseled war. The lizard clan called on its deity, the horned toad, and the snake clan called on its deities, the snakes of the directions, for help. Then they made ready for battle. First, they sent all the old men, women, and children to a new location they had picked, Wukoslkabe, Wide Valley, along Gila Bend. These people moved out at night, unseen by the Bow Clan. Then at dawn, all the young men, all armed for battle, moved close to the Bow Clan settlement and waited for the attack with their deities, the Horned Toad and the Snake. Soon Saveki came, leading the Bow Clan warriors, and the battle began, deity against deity, people against people. It was a fierce fight, lasting all day, but at sundown, the Bow Clan admitted defeat. In order to disgrace Saviki, the lizard and snake clans took his bow away from him and put a snake in his mouth. So it is today that the deity of the Bow Clan is always pictured with a snake in his mouth, and the bow taken from the Bow Clan is now used by the snake clan in its own Kiva rituals. The signature of the Bow Clan found at Salapa on Mesa Verde shows the snake in his mouth. So this battle must have taken place before the Bow Clan reached Mesa Verde. After the battle, the young warriors of the lizard and snake clans joined their people along Gila Bend. For a long time, they lived there in the ruins of their village, and their ball court and track may be still found. From here, they migrated to Chukaki, Mudhouse Village, possibly Casa Grande, then to Homolovi, the Mud Mound, and then to Tokuiva, Clifftop Village. Going north, they stayed at Masipa, the Gray Spring, below present Zuni. At Canyon de Chez, they found the Asnyam people, the Mustard Clan, already established, so moved on to Mesa Verde. Once again, many clans united, the Fire and Flute clans calling their settlement Kowestima, the Coal Place, the Spider Clan Kokyeniki, Spider House, and the Snake and Lizard Clan Chukkiva, the Snake House. 
They all then moved to the cliff called Pavakia, Pavakiki, Swallow House. After several years, the Fire Clan moved directly to Orabi. The Snake and Lizard Clans moved to Sunbava, Sunava, Sound of Waterfalls, or Grand Falls on the Little Colorado, before entering Orabi. The bow and arrow shaft clans. An aura of mystery and evil has forever hovered about the name of the bow clan. Every Hopi knows that the bow clan was the ruling clan in the previous third world, and that its wickedness and corruption caused the world to be destroyed. As we remember, the people left that world secretly just before it was destroyed by water and made their emergence to the present fourth world. They did not tell the Bow Clan that they were leaving or where they were going because they did not want the Bow Clan to follow them. But long after they arrived and began their migrations over the continent, members of the Bow Clan also landed on the shore of this fourth world. No one knows why they were not all destroyed or how they managed to get here. One only knows that the power of evil is very great. When the members of the Bow Clan arrived, they first established themselves at a place called Pupsovi, Seven Caves. These caves or villages in which they lived were named Water Vapor or Fog, Place of Escape, Supreme Deity or Sun God, Clear Water, Large Reed, being guided ahead, and deity of the Two Horns Society. So we've got Pamuosi, Waki, Taiwa, Pavati, Opaka, Wikima, Alosaka. Multiplying and prospering. Wait, go back here. Both the Aztecs and the Quishmaya have a tradition that they came from seven womb caverns or caves or ravines, thence migrating to their historical homelands in Mexico and Yucatan. Okay, these seven villages, multiplying and prospering, they began their long migration northward to catch up with the other clans. The route extended up through the central part of Mexico, Along it, they made seven stops, establishing a village at each place in which they lived several, several years. These seven villages they named after their first cave villages at Pupsovi. The first was Pomosi, the second Waki, the third Taiwa, said to have been not far from Mexico City. The fourth was Pavati, and the fifth was Hopata, or Hopaka. Here the people, the chief, the chief's wife, gave birth to twin girls. One was wrapped One was wrapped in a blanket of woven reeds, Hopaka, and the other, Songkna, a covering of smaller reeds. After growing to womanhood, the first twin organized a large group of her people into a new branch of the clan. 
because her name was Hawangwa, the clan was called the Hawangwa, or the Arrow Shaft Clan. Breaking away from the Bow Clan, the Arrow Shaft Clan passed two villages abandoned by clans who had preceded them, Chosovi, Bluebird Hill, and Pavovi, Water and High. These villages are believed to have been in the vicinity of the present-day Casa Grande in Chihuahua. Going east and then north, they followed up the Rio Grande River, past Mesa Verde, crossed the Colorado, and went far north. They then came back, went to the Pacific, and returned to the three Hopi Mesas. Some of the people settling at Awatovi and some at Walpi. During all their migration, they were in trouble, for although their leaders knew the rituals and ceremonies, they did not have the Mancos, which the Bow clan had retained. Every time they set up their altar and appealed to their deity, Saviki, guardian of the water flow, they found that they had no power. And without power, they could not get along with the other clans they began to meet. A quarrel always came up for which they were blamed, and they had to move away. Meanwhile, the Bow clan moved north from Hopaka and established its sixth village, Wikima. As the name of the village meant being guided ahead, the chief sent out four young men to climb a high ridge to the north and wait there for four days for a sign to guide them. On the fourth day, the sign came and a tall cloud that built up like a tall pillar fell, pointing the way to Urabe. Once the Bow clan made preparations at once to move again in this direction, once more the people established a village, their seventh and last, named Ol. Alosaka, after the deity of the clan's powerful two-horn society. It, its ruins today may be found about 20 miles west of Meteor Crater and about 45 miles southwest of Flagstaff. After they were settled, the chief sent a message to Orabe requesting permission to enter. The chief of Orabe, a member of the Bear Clan, sent back word that the Bow clan could not be permitted into Orabe, but could settle in any of the other villages that were being built. This was when the Bow clan tried to destroy the village, as has been previously related. For many years afterward, the Bow clan remained at Alasaka. Then it moved to the bottom of the cliffs on the south of Orabe and lived there several years more. Once more, permission was asked to settle in Orabi. For a long time, the matter was argued. The Bow clan was known to have caused trouble and evil wherever it went, both in this world and in the previous one. But also, it had great power which could be used to advantage. This power was symbolized by the Mancos which the Bow clan had brought with them from the Third World. The Manco is the supreme symbol of spiritual power and authority. Ritual Mancos are held by only three societies, the Two-Horn, One-Horn, 
and flute. Those of the two-horn society are most important, for the two horns are the only ones who possess full knowledge of the three previous worlds. And these two-horned monkos are the ones belonging to the Bow Clan. The long one, nearly four feet long, is the largest known and was used to close the Kiva entrance during the Wu-Wu-Shim initiation ceremony. Tied to the short one was the shortest ear of corn, the tiny little ear brought by the Bow Clan from the third world to guarantee everlasting food on this fourth world. These Mancos decided the argument. All the people of various clans who had settled in Orabi needed the two-horn rituals to complete their ceremonial pattern. So reluctantly, they agreed to admit the Bow Clan for permanent settlement. Here the story of the Bow Clan must end for the time, but as we will see later, the evil of the Bow Clan persisted in disastrous ends. For just as bow and arrow are no good separately, it was necessary for the Bow Clan and the Arrow Shaft Clan to reunite in order to complete the ritual. But the Arrow Shaft Clan was living at Awatovi, which in time came under the domination of the incoming Spaniards and their Christian church. Hence, the destruction of Awatovi and the massacre of its inhabitants by the other Hopi villages was for the purpose of wiping out the foreign Christian religion and bringing the survivors of the Arrowshaft clan to Orabi to complete the Two-Horn Society ritual of the Bow clan. The Skunk at Pottery Mound Despite the lack of knowledge about the history of the Bow clan and the aura of evil about it, the Bow clan was a powerful clan. Traces of it and the rituals of the Two-Horn Society which belong to it, are found far off in its direct migration route, which has been outlined. One of these is the painting of a skunk found on the wall of a kiva excavated by the University of New Mexico at Pottery Mound, southwest of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Two Hopi religious societies used the skunk as a symbol ritual, a ritual symbol the Snake Society and the Two-Horn Society. The Snake Society, as a signal that its members are holding a ceremony within the kiva, displays a bow to which are tied the skins of a skunk, the carrier of the hot embers, and two weasels, tobacco odor carrying animals. The Pottery Mound painting definitely belongs to, to the Two-Horn Society of the Bow Clan. At the center is pictured a skunk holding its front paws, a naka, wood that opens back and forth like a pair of tongs. These tongs or naka are used during the new fire ceremony at Wuwuchim when hot embers are carried in them from the two-horned kiva to light ceremonial fires in the other three participating kivas. 
the one-horned flute, and the woo-woo-chim. When this is done, there are four fires lighted to the four directions in the four kivas. The fire pits are illustrated by the four small squares in the four directions. The eagle feathers extending from these four directional fire pits represent the power of the ceremony, as eagle feathers symbolize power. The four objects at the tip of these eagle feathers represent the rays of the sun from which fire itself derives. The outer circle around the skunk and linking the four fire pits is dark red, symbolizing the sun itself and the derivative fires from the four kivas. The orange circle within symbolizes the germinating heat, the theme of the entire Wu-Wu-Chim ceremony. And the white inner circle symbolizes the pure white heat of the sun. The skunk himself symbolizes the sun, for his strong scent extends like the sun's rays, which reach out over all the world to give life to all forms of life, plant, animal, and man. This is again symbolized by the marking above the skunk's back, which is called a tuvotaawat, or a sun shield the face of the sun or the creator as represented by the complete design itself. The sun temple at Mesa Verde. All this is structurally recapitulated in the great edifice at Mesa Verde, Colorado, commonly known as the sun temple. The ruin stands on top of the lofty mesa overlooking Cliff Palace Canyon. And it's in an excellent state of preservation, the walls standing nearly six feet high. It was dubbed the Sun Temple when it was discovered in 1915, but its purpose and symbolism have never been revealed till now. Its very shape shows it was a ceremonial building erected for the conduct of ceremonies belonging to the Bow Clan. The immense structure facing east has the shape of a bow with a drawn string. The northern half of the building, another bow within the greater bow, comprises a semicircular row of 13 rooms surrounding an open plaza within which are two kivas. The one to the north was the kiva of the Two-Horn Society and the one to the south that of the One-Horn Society. In front of the two-horned kiva is a small ledge or platform. Here, during the ceremony, the two-horned leader sat down to the north, both feet on the platform, holding in his lap his symbol of spiritual authority, the monko. He was followed by the one-horned leader. The feet of both men touched, again forming the symbol of the bow and signifying the unity and authority with which they now recited the complete history of their creation and their migrations. The one horn, with his limited knowledge, spoke first, followed by the two horn, 
who traditionally has full knowledge of all four worlds. It is said there might have been a cotton cord strung between the heads of the two priests, symbolizing the string of the bow formed by their feet and bodies. The thirteen rooms surrounded the two kivas. They held the two horned initiates being instructed by their godfathers. From these rooms, they were dispatched by couples to patrol the area on the night of Astotokaya, washing of the hair ceremony, the initiation night of terror and mystery. The first four rooms in front forming the string of the bow were the most important. They symbolized the four worlds and the four kivas participating in the ceremony. The southern half of the wall of the building also contained two kivas. The smaller one with a fire pit in the center belonged to the one-horned society. The larger one was the two-horned kiva. Into this, from underneath an adjoining room which was which held flute society members, ran a vent known as the Huixi, the breath of life. The surrounding rooms were occupied by members of the Wu Qim society, which traditionally has the largest membership of the four participating societies. Is <clears throat> it's not so secret, and it keeps its ritual paraphernalia in such rooms. The vent ran from the Flute Society chamber because the ceremony is dependent on the Flute Society, which helps to produce the warmth for germination. Also from the two-horned kiva, on the night of the new fire ceremony, are carried embers to light fires in all the other kivas symbolizing the kindling of life anew. The members are carried in tongs called nata, just like the skunk has, described in the preceding section. The construction of the huixi, the breath of life, shows it to be in the form of a torch which overcomes darkness and evil with its light. The torch carried by the patrolling couples on the mystery-filled night of the washing of the hair. Perhaps the most mysterious detail of construction in the building is the sundial at the southeast corner. It is a small stone containing four indented dots with grooves extending from them. The stone is known as the tawalaki, or the sunray stone. It lies in a direct line with the string of the bow formed by the four chambers in the north section of the building. And its four dots also symbolize the four worlds and the leaders of the four participating societies, the two-horned, one-horned, flute, and wuxim. The stone was watched carefully in the late afternoon preceding the night of the washing of the hair by the leading two-horned priest. When the rays of the lowering sun struck the grooves so that no shadow was formed, he and his assistants, the Kalektaka, made their pilgrimage to the shrine at Aponivi to plant a pahu before the sun went down. 
As described in Part 3, the same ceremony, Wuvushim, is still performed, the timing for this rite being established by the striking of the sun's rays at a certain angle on the wall of the two-horned kiva. The small platform in front of the two-horned kiva carries an additional meaning, signifying the monko, which is the emblem and the authority of the bow clan. There seems little doubt that the sun temple is the one great monument of the now almost extinct bow clan, offering additional proof of Hopi occupancy of Mesa Verde. <laughs>